The news! It's mad, it's out of control, and there's so much of it. That's why we've launched Paper Cuts, the fast and funny podcast that makes sense of the great British press, now out five days a week. I'm Miranda Sawyer, and I'm joined by brilliant comedians, commentators, journalists and general smart people to look at the weirdness, the obsessions and the occasional triumphs of the papers. We're out mid-morning every weekday with the funniest headlines, the wildest stories and tip-top commentary on the absolute state of the fourth estate. Subscribe now on your favourite podcast app. That's Paper Cuts. We read the papers so you don't have to. Hello, it's Andrew Harrison here. Welcome to our roughly monthly panel edition of The Bunker, where we step off the hectic daily treadmill and bring together a few friends of the podcast for a bit more of a leisurely chat about the world of politics. On this special edition, we've heard about nothing but the pros and cons of centrism for the past decade or so. But what even is the centre anymore? Is it the place Britain desperately wants us to return to? Or are we fooling ourselves that Keir Starmer can get us back to a place that doesn't really exist anymore? And while we're at it, why is everybody in politics still frightened of newspapers? Press circulations are through the floor. Readerships are ageing. Every paper says exactly what you'd expect it to. And the UK has the second lowest level of trust in its press of 24 countries surveyed. Only Egypt scored worse. So why do our leaders still jump when the papers tell them to? And we found something human about Rishi Sunak. He likes the Beatles, which makes a change from prime ministers desperately trying to look cool and different. We'll take a look at politicians' woeful record on the bands they say they like. Here to talk it all over, it's an all-star crossover of the Podmasters and Bunker universes. We have the journalist and presenter of our newspaper review, Paper Cuts, now out five times a week, Miranda Sawyer. Hello, Miranda Sawyer. Hiya. Welcome aboard. What's your favourite band? Well, it's fairly obvious. I'm going to give you the obvious answer and then someone else that I like so you can all rush out to listen to them. Mm-hmm. So the obvious answer is Blur. Yes. You knew you were, I was going to say that, okay. didn't you? I've literally seen them twice already this year. And then um, the other one I would recommend, he performs in a gimp mask and often in a mini kilt with several sexy dancers around him. So I know you're interested. He's called Lynx, L-Y-N-K-S. He's the future of music. Andrew, you will love him. Okay, all right. We'll, we'll, we'll put a playlist together possibly without honours. <laughs> it's quite rude. I should imagine. We also have friend of the podcast, legend of political commentary and presenter of rock and roll politics of the podcast, Steve Richards. Hi, Steve. Hi, Andrew. What's your favourite band and can it compete with Lynx? Well, I've I've just come back running slowly, listening to the latest or relatively latest Blur album. So, but I won't say that. So um, it's quite good for running because it goes, if you want to run slowly, there's quite a lot of slow stuff, but then it gets a bit heavy. Yes. I like it a lot and it grows on you. Um, and I'm also listening now to quite, I know they got really bad reviews from Glastonbury, but I, I quite like listening to uh, the Arctic Monkeys, but that makes me sound like Gordon Brown. I know you're going to be politicians, fake choices of bands uh, shortly. Um, but no, the, the ones I always return to, I'm afraid, are great kind of terrible cliches, but I do return to them, a, a Bowie, Beatles and stuff like that. I just... There we go. I still can't get enough of them, to be honest. Centrist dad rock, that's what we're here for. <laughs> and completing the panel, it's the power behind the button, Podmasters Managing Editor, Jacob Jarvis. Hello, Jacob. Hi, Andrew. What is your favourite band? So my favourite band, uh, actually I'm going to second Lynx, by the way. I saw Lynx covering uh, so David Bowie at the Aladdin Sane performance. So I had a little uh, crossover of your two's tastes there. My favourite band is nothing like any of those, though. My favourite band is a band called The Wonder Years, who are a uh, sort of pop punk band, I suppose is what I'd describe them as. Oh, God. Yeah, I know. You'd hate them, Andrew. But they're my favourite band. I would absolutely hate them. <laughs> no synths involved. Andrew's no. out. <laughs> Earlier this week, our guest Steve wrote a piece for The Guardian, headlined Cuts, War, Brexit. All fuel the battle for the centre ground, but nobody really knows where that is. 
Being in the centre is a political article of faith. It, supposedly, is where you win. But after the political convulsions of the past decade, the centre has become a mysterious place. Everybody knows where it is, but nobody knows what's there. Steve, you pointed out that in the early 2010s, centrists could violently disagree on the main policy of the time, austerity, which was hard-right small-state politics dressed up as consensus politics, yet they could still be centrists and they'd still be assailed by both sides. What happened to the centre in the 2010s in this mad decade we've just experienced? Well, and and before then, to be honest. Um, And by the way, it hasn't always been fashionable to be on the centre ground. Thatcher, who used to win elections with her eyes closed, used to say if you go across the road in the middle, you get run over. So she was happy to uh, win elections from the right. But I think Tony Blair sort of uh, made it fashionable to describe yourself as centrist um, without ever defining what that meant. And I think it's been a real problem. And you mentioned the main problem, that when David Cameron and George Osborne came about and won an election in 2010. They fooled a lot of people by appearing reasonable and engaged and, you know, cycling and running and all that, that they were therefore centrist and going off to hug hoodies and so on. Whereas if you follow their policy trail, which was real-term spending cuts in response to the global crash, the only duo of a mainstream party arguing for it, um, they were of the right. I mean, you can defend it, but they are on the right. And the BBC took them as centrists. They say, welcoming now, here's Tony Blair uh, talking about the centre ground. They never ask him what he means by that. And I think it distorts politics. To give you an example, Keir Starmer now says he's on the centre ground, Labour's on the centre ground. Well, Rishi Sunak admits he's on the right, a fiscal conservative, he calls himself. So to be on the centre, wherever that is, you have to be some way to the left of Rishi Sunak. You can't just fiddle around and say, we're going to be a little better than the Conservatives and claim that's the centre ground. You're still on the right. And so I think it has distorted everything uh, in a way that's really dangerous. And the BBC, I don't think, are biased to the left or biased to the right. But when it comes to the centre, they see it almost like a form of impartiality and don't ever challenge anyone when they say they're on the centre ground. And it's kind of made a mess of our politics, I think. What does constitute sort of workable centrism now? I mean, we've kind of, we've been through a decade of political extremes and almost everyone has run against the stodgy consensus. And it now looks like we will have a Starmer government that is proudly central. And yet the policies can be quite radical. We see, Andrew, you're using a lot of words there. What do you mean by central? What do you mean by radical? Um, So I would argue that to be on the centre ground now, um, you would have to consider uh, things which actually Starmer has rejected. So, for example, you know, privatisation is now widely seen as being a disaster. The private, you know, the the privatised monopolies, water, etc., but Labour are too scared to go there because it reminds people of Jeremy Corbyn or, and it's, in theory, expensive to address. But I think you could easily argue uh, you are on the centre ground and argue that privatisation is a disaster and therefore must be addressed and that a modern government must be responsible for the delivery of public services. But that's not where Labour are. So it is deeply subjective and that's the problem. See, Tony Blair thinks it was centrist to invade Iraq. I think Osborne genuinely thinks he's on the centre ground in bringing about deep spending cuts after the 2010 election. I think I could argue for the centre ground and put the case for public ownership. of. And I notice Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester has just put the buses and trams back into public ownership and claims he's on the centre ground. So so what you have to do, I think, as a leader is be radical, as you suggest, and then argue you're on the centre ground. In other words, shift it to where you want it to be. But at the moment, you've got all these people saying they're centrist without explaining what that is. And just kind of, it's just out there in the air as this vague term. Do you think, Steve, you know, with, uh, with that, it's about splitting up as well, socially and fiscally centre with that because it seems to me people like Osborne for example could just say because he was maybe socially more liberal it would appear and then quite hard fine fiscally could use that to to mash it up and sort of say well I'm I'm 10 here but I'm two here so therefore I'm at five I'm in the middle 
exactly. Yeah. Social liberalism, like Europe, are deceptive um, in that there are lots of people who are socially liberal, who are very right wing. I mean, the, the one I love is Steve Hilton, who used to be Cameron's advisor. And because he went around in uh, bare feet and shorts and smoked and uh, everyone thought, oh, he must be you know, a centrist modernizer. You know, he believed in social liberalism. People do whatever they wanted under him. But he was also a small state libertarian who now works for Fox News backing Donald Trump. And people say, oh, Steve Hilton's changed. He hasn't changed at all. And unless we get these terms uh, more precise, um, it's going to distort politics. I mean, if if Steve Hilton is a centrist, uh, Keir Starmer's a Marxist, you know, in, in terms of the <laughs> gaps. And that is one thing Keir Starmer isn't. I think this goes to another uh, rule to live by, of not just of politics, but of life, which is never trust a hippie. But uh, we can discuss that <laughs> at, at another time. Miranda, have the centrist dads won? I mean, you've got Alastair Campbell and Rory Stewart and Osborne and Ed Balls all over the podcasting universe, our podcasts. You know, <laughs> Keir Starmer is centrist daddy in Excelsis. It was coined as an insult and has become... Uh, a way to legitimise people, isn't it? It's funny because centrist dad always makes me kind of think of blokes wandering down the middle aisle of little. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, thinking of maybe... Middle of little dad. Middle middle little dad who's thinking of picking up a kind of collapsible trouser press. But I mean, I think that generally centrist means a kind of, hey, common sense. Mm. You know, actually, I'm going to go in there and not do very much at all. It's like you won't change anything. Do you know what I mean? So so the reason why Keir Starmer can say that he's supposed to like Jeremy Corbyn is he's genuinely just saying, I'm not going to do anything. Don't worry. Nothing's going to happen. I'll just tinker with it. I mean, I would support somebody like Andy Burnham. I mean, he's a kind of dynamic centrist in inverted commas in that he's not Corbyn but I think this centre ground just seems to be don't worry everyone they won't take too much from you you comfortably off person so vote for them that's yeah. the idea of the centre the centrist I mean just given the fact that everybody well not everybody but you know that the male are getting so overexcited about Keir Starmer putting VAT on private schools which will affect exactly 7% of the population I mean you know they're going absolutely nuts about it. It's a completely unradical thing to do. Well, it's unradical in the sense of how the number of people it will affect, but it's symbolically quite radical. And I just want you to say, you know, Starmer's uh, kind of bill of fare is to do nothing. I think that's not not really true. I mean, the criticism is that he's gone very far in not frightening the horses uh, to to present and, and that therefore Labour doesn't stand for anything. But when you look at what the policy is, they're offering... Stable public finances and prudent spending. You could characterise that as, as as business as usual. You could also say there is no alternative at the moment. It's also promising, promising £28 billion on the green economy, more police officers, more NHS workers, more teachers, no more money for childcare, but other things such as breakfast clubs and support. But he's presenting it in a kind of way that doesn't shake it up. So what he's saying Mm. is that you, you normal people, your life will be slightly better. So you'll get, you know, better childcare, the schools will be better, all the things that kind of people would, everybody would want, really. He's not saying that these are entirely radical things. He's trying not to rock the boat. I mean, yeah, I would like him to have it to get in, in order to do those things that do seem weirdly radical now, but actually aren't. You know, they seem quite normal to me. I think that's sort of how the centre seems to be presenting itself to me. It's kind of uh, the status quo but better yeah and how could how do you sell the status quo but better but that's also buying into the fact that people on the right and the conservatives are pretending that there is a status quo which is solid which we're not we're in crisis at the moment yeah steve you're you're, um, very good and always have been on what are the things that make people vote differently and it seems to be the kind of unifying thing is change people vote for change when they need change when they are either sick to death of a government or when the government has clearly run out of steam they vote for the uh, party that can articulate the need for change what jarvis just described there the state has got better what does that mean for the next election well, I think you and Miranda have uh, given the uh, alternative options. And, and and at the moment, you're both right. I mean, a lot of what Starmer says is this castle we're all living in is falling apart. Everything is wrong with it. We plan to change the ashtrays. <laughs> and yet, as you suggest, Andrew, there is also, um, if you follow the policy trail, the potential for this next government to be quite radical on the Green Recovery Programme. You know, uh, abolishing the charitable status on on private schools, I think, will be a challenge to the private school sector and not beyond. New Labour were too scared to do it. So it could go either way. And in a way, you both highlight the dilemma, because I agree with you, Andrew. What 
the mood is now is aching for change. The sense that nothing bloody works in Britain. There's a yearning for something new. But what you've all, all, all of you have just said is part of the Labour message is, well, we'll tinker around the edges, you know. So we will only know when, if and when Labour win, whether this is a sort of government of real uh, change or just flapping around. But I sense if they do just tinker, uh, there'll be a one-term government. Well, I'm old enough to remember the run-up to 1997 and friends I knew who worked for Labour. I'd be saying to them, Come, where, where's, you know, where is the radicalism here? Where's, where's the meat on this? And I'll be told over and over again, look, don't worry, it's coming. End of term one, start of term two, but we just have to get in. We cannot frighten the horses. Is that a similar memory for you, Steve? Because you were much more in the thick of it than me that time. Yeah, yeah, it was really interesting. See, Blair's, Blair's political genius was to make in 97, the increment, it was the most cautious manifesto any party had put forward for a long time. But, you know, his speeches, a new Britain, a young Britain, a Britain reborn, you know, all they were going to do was fiddle around at the edges. Um, but he made it seem exciting. And it, it wasn't until the second term that they invested in the NHS. Sure Start wasn't in any manifesto, but was a real radical change and cost a lot of money, which they never pledged before an election to do. Um, so, but where I think one of the differences now is that the impatience is greater. You know, so the NHS is in a worse state. Transport is in a worse state. And I wonder whether if Keir Starmer says, well, be patient, we'll do some of this in the second term, whether he will be given that space. Again, I just don't know. Um, but I feel the mood for change is greater, actually, uh, than in 97. Joe, have you been digging into the research and the polling? Does the polling show where the public actually is on the extremes versus centre position? Yeah, well, for a country where we're, we're sort of constantly told that it's really polarised and split and really far, people don't think that about themselves. So about 3% of people say they're very left and about 3% of people then say they're very right. So actually the most common response when they ask people this is that they don't know, which I think is quite interesting and speaks to what Steve's been saying, that these sort of terms are quite, they're loosely defined and people don't understand them. But then around 21% say they are in the centre and around 13% say slightly left and 13% say slightly right. But what I find interesting there is then, hey, that's 47% of people essentially say they're in the centre what can that possibly mean if 47% of people think they're there? You know, there's a room of four people here and we can't all agree on the same things. But does that just mean that everybody, I mean, you know, that everybody thinks they're reasonable? I mean, you know, kind of, I know that sounds a bit wishy-washy, you know, that yeah. people just generally think that what they're saying is reasonable. And if you call it left and right, I think I do think it's harder for people to understand. You know, my... My son is slightly politically engaged, kind of, you know, whatever. But he doesn't really understand what left and right means. There's certain things he's interested in and there's certain things he's not. And so sometimes I wonder if that's the way to, you know, it's a very traditional way to think about it. If we think about like now there's a literally a Lib Dem kind of conference going on that everyone's ignoring. Surely that is, this, you know, surely that's the centre. Why are we not all going well, for Well, not that? a Liberal Democratic Party that won't build any bloody houses. That's, is that the centre? I don't but think so. But do you know so. what I mean? But it's traditionally seen as the centre. So, yeah. like, if it is the centre, why are we not all there? You yeah. know what? I think we may have hit upon what's required, and it may be some form of a third way. Perhaps <laughs> Steve can do the voice. Yeah. I feel the hand of history on your shoulder, Steve. Yeah, right, Andrew. Yeah, third way. Let's, let's do it. Right. <laughs> but um, it is interesting. See, the third way got Tony Blair in the end in quite a lot of trouble because with Iraq, um, he navigated a third way. People say, oh, what an aberration Iraq was. It wasn't. He tried... Uh, he said, right, I'm going to back America, but I'm going to persuade Bush to take their case to the UN. And um, that's what he tried to do, um, but it didn't work. And so his third way sometimes led to huge, huge problems. Um, but when he did it at, at his kind of sharpest from 97 for a bit, it led to these labor landslides. So... Yeah, I don't think the third way kind of settles it either. But what I think it is, is you put your case, and as Moran says, you don't say it's on the left or right because people don't respond to that. But you put a case that is radical and say, in Labour's case, on the left, and then say it's on the centre ground. 
if you put it reasonably, people think you're on the centre ground. A lot of people think Sunak is a centrist because he's he appears reasonable, whereas he himself mm. says he's on the right. You know, so I want to start printing the radical centrist T-shirts right now. <laughs> <laughs> Next, it's another article of faith in this country, that the newspapers are all-powerful. Politicians live in fear of a bad headline in the Mail or the Times. Papers like The Telegraph have a hotline to the policy engineering room of the Tory party. Boris Johnson famously called the paper, My Real Boss. Labour even listens to The Guardian sometimes. But why? Newspaper circulations have been devastated by digital media. The Suns is down below 1.2 million, not far from where it was when Murdoch relaunched it as a tabloid in 1969, and the paper's book value at News UK is reputed to be zero pounds. Remarkably, the Sun, Times and Telegraph titles have all kept their ABC circulations, the total figures of what they sell, private since 2020, and The Guardian and The Observer started doing it in September 2021. And according to the World Value Study from King's College London, the British trust their papers less than citizens of any other major country except Egypt. Just 13% of people had a great deal or a lot of trust in the press in the UK, compared to 30% in France and the US, 36% in Germany and 70% in Japan. So why are politicians still terrified of the papers? Which papers have real power and which are paper tigers? Steve. Are the papers as powerful as they used to be? Because they certainly behave as if they are. Uh, not quite, uh, but they are still. They still matter, and I can see why politicians are still obsessed by them. Because even though people don't necessarily buy them, they do contribute to the political mood. So you know, uh, the front page of the Times or the Mail is reported on the BBC. It's then reported on other outlets as well and on Twitter. And quite often it generates a debate and then something appears on Facebook. And so one way or another, I think they still permeate through. And it will be a news story what various newspapers decide to do at the election. And so I think probably politicians are excessively obsessed by them. But I think they are right still to engage with them and try and persuade them to put their view across as sympathetically as possible. It's dangerous, this relationship, in my view. But I can see why politicians still worry about it. Could you say we've just had a live example over the ULES issue, where the Conservative press managed yeah. to turn a marginal by-election vote in one very atypical constituency into the national opinion about green traffic measures, and both parties kind of jumped immediately? Yeah, exactly. And it was very interesting. When Sunak gave his uh, talk stroke press conference at number 10 about uh, changing his uh, climate change targets... Uh, the political editor of The Sun, Harry... Harry Cole. Harry Cole, that's the one, uh, to ask a question, uh, sort of challenging Sunak a bit. And, and, and Sunak revealingly said, but Harry, your paper has been running a campaign for me to do this. And I think, you know, one of the things in Sunak's mind is to rally the conservative supporting newspapers who've been expressing their doubts about him. Uh, so he gets their full blast of support and they turn on Starmer. And when they turn on Starmer, before very long, you will hear the Today programme doing a feature on whatever they're attacking Starmer for. It happened when Starmer, when the police were investigating Starmer about whether he broke lockdown rules in Durham. Uh, the Daily Mail ran a front page about it for about eight days in a row. And before long, the Today programme were doing interviews about it. And, and that is where the dynamic, that's why Sunak is wooing the sun and the male, um, because they have a wider impact um, when they are relentless in slaughtering someone or backing someone. It's quite interesting, the idea that everyone has always believed that the tabloids drive the opinions of white van man. And in fact, they're driving the opinions of, you know, John T in Broadcasting House as he tries to fill the Today programme at four o'clock in the morning. It's exactly that. You see, in Broadcasting House, there isn't much contact with the outside world, to be honest. I mean, I'm sure we've all spent time in there. And I work there. 
And where there is contact with the outside world is when the papers arrive in whatever form. Now, obviously, you can see them digitally and producers are following Twitter all day as well. And then they respond. Now, you know, the Today program doesn't get as big an audience as it used to do. But then you get headlines on the 10 o'clock television news and, the, and so on. So, so they feed off each other. So one way or another, politics is still mediated. It might be different from 30 or 40 years ago, but it's still mediated. And it's mediated quite often by very opinionated sources and sometimes very powerful tools of propaganda. So politicians are basically scared of uh, newspapers and certainly the Twitterati on the right, they're scared of. As I say, I think they're probably right to be scared of them. Miranda, it seems strange to talk about the possibly waning powers of the papers when we just launched a podcast about the papers. Well, yes. Yes. <laughs> but you've you worked at the Mirror for a, a good while and you cover the papers every day. Has the power of the papers changed in your years of involvement with tabloids? Yeah. I mean, when I worked at the Mirror, I was freelance, so I didn't go in that often, obviously, because that's the point of being a freelancer. And I have to say that when I did go in, the main thing I noticed that was different about the tabloids from the broadsheets was that the tabloid uh, men wore a suit and they, whenever they spoke to you, if you were sitting down, they'd get another chair and they'd kind of put one foot up on one chair. So, <laughs> so that their crotch was always slightly for, closer to you. Which maximum, was a bit, maximum mansplain. Uh, yes, a bit unnerving. That was the main thing I remember about tabloids. Um, but the other main thing I remember is obviously they had money then. So like if you have money, um, then you can afford to be perhaps a little risky with some of your headlines or your investigations because you're not going to get sued. And if you are sued, you have the money to kind of back you up. I mean, I do think the papers are still important. You know, if we only have to look at the recent um, investigation of Russell Brand, that's incredibly important, an incredibly important story that would have not got out if the Times and the Sunday Times and dispatches hadn't kind of spent so long on it. And also, if you think they're not important, what I always think is, like, if you look at really basic things like kind of consumer products, Right. If you're having a really bad time around whatever, you know, your 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 mum's bank account is, but she's been treated really badly. If you go to a newspaper and it is featured in their paper, it gets sorted out. So what you're talking about is a kind of brand presentation. So if you're a politician, of course it matters. You need to get your brand out and you need to get it out in a pithy way, which politicians can't really do. That's not really their speciality. And whenever they try and control the media, they get it wrong. So they need to get it out. They need to have the right journalists putting it out to public, the public or it doesn't work. I think we'd all agree that it's been it's been a pretty good few weeks for actual newspaper journalism. Some yeah. terrible things have been brought to light. But when, what we're sort of looking at the actual idea of political power, the idea to shift opinions, shift voters, shift politicians. Yeah. I mean, you were on the Mirror and you've been on the Observer for a long time. A lot, you know, a lot of, of that time during the the Blair years when they were the helpful newspapers, the candid yeah. newspapers, not quite as helpful as uh, Blair and Alex Campbell would have wished that they were. Mm. Uh, what was it like being in a supportive newspaper environment for the existing government? I mean, it's interesting to be an in inverted commas on the side of the winners. Because that doesn't always happen, especially with left-wing papers. That really doesn't happen that often. And so there's a kind of confidence around that that I don't think is necessarily quite as available. If you look at the mirror, the mirror is less, much less confident uh, a newspaper. The Guardian is, I mean, still pretty confident. But if you look at the swagger, in inverted commas, of, say, the mail, um, then I think they're not as confident as they were because they're not, you know, in in inverted commas in power so what the guardian always has to do is just be a bit gloomy you've got to be a bit yeah. gloomy if you, because you basically have to say people to people on the left everything's a bit rubbish it's a bit rubbish because of the government so let's change it so it's almost like it's it's like a mood read where the pa where the papers are important i think is online everybody kind of reads the mail online even if they don't think they do they do because it's all over facebook it's all over twitter it's all over threads you know that's where they're important as well. Well, I was, I was going to ask you, I mean, do, does, do you think that it matters that we're now in a new era where this stuff reaches people who have not self-selected as a mail reader who just reads the mail? I read more from the mail now than I ever have done. And I'm sure somewhere else in the country, somebody's reading more of The Guardian than they ever did before because they're also being told, look at this disgraceful thing that they're saying. We kind of have, we've broken the boundaries of these silos and we've kind of seen what everybody else is reading. And in many cases, we don't like it. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting, actually, because also if you look on TikTok, I mean, TikTok is another way of consuming news, which is really, really different, actually. And they really, I mean, TikTok users tend to be quite right on. So if you kind of say, oh, it's from the mail, they'll just pile in. 
Just yeah. that's what they do. They don't like anyone anything from the male because they're young. You know, that's great. And I think it's, it's on one level, it's quite interesting because when I was younger, I probably didn't read, you know, I didn't read the mail. I didn't really read any right-wing papers because I wasn't a right-wing person, even though we're not talking, you know, left and right doesn't exist. Whereas now I read them. Sometimes I'll read something I think, oh, that's, yeah, maybe I do agree. Maybe that's part of the reason why we're not left and right because we just get stuff from everywhere in our feeds. Yeah. Jarv, listeners might be listening to this and thinking, what do they mean? Are the papers still powerful? You know, what? look what happened with Brexit, which, you know, in which the, the, the press as part of a campaigning block turned a fringe concern about Britain's membership from Europe, which rated very badly and, you know, sort of bottom 20 of people's concerns at, at the, the start of the decade into the top issue for voters, which basically has transformed the country. I mean, is that fair? I mean, is that the kind of, the sort of, the undeniable case that, yes, the papers have power and it's never going to go away. I think this goes into what Steve was saying about how the papers set the tone for all of the reporting within the country. I mean, I remember I was working at the the Evening Standards sort of right after Brexit. And, you know, you would but you'd pick up the papers every morning and that would be at 7 a.m. You think what what needs to go on the front page of the new of the website right now? And that's your first part of call is sort of throw together a rewritten version of whatever's in the papers and take that mood from it. And so, for example, there's there's quite an interesting theory that I think tied into this by a guy called Ryan Holiday, who is a bit of a, he was a sort of dark arts PR guy in America. He wrote a book called Trust Me, I'm Lying. He did a thing called Trading Up the Chain, where he would get things into smaller publications and see them sort of bounce all the way up. And it's weird that the papers are obviously really powerful. But they kind of have done, they kind of did that almost with Brexit, is that they they proliferated it so broadly that then, as Miranda says, all the online websites would then do it and take their own take on it and take whatever version it might be. All the BBC would do it, all the radio, and it dominated then everything, and that became that tone. And then things have been fed up to people in algorithms where they're really angry. The papers themselves directly maybe are less powerful it's not reading the paper that's frustrating everyone but it's been able to spread that out to everywhere else and influence what everyone else is talking about is what happened there. and it's also the speed of it isn't it it's that kind of like if you think about how our attention has changed a little bit since social media you know everybody's getting diagnosed with adhd aren't they but i don't think everybody has adhd it's just that we're fed things so quickly that you kind of feel like you might have and the news is really part of that because it's new what is new what is new and that's what you want in your social media feed all the time all the time and the papers are very good at giving you that yeah steve other instances in the past of uh, political leaders being able to say having enough political capital to say effectively screw the papers i've got enough wind in my sails i'm I'm gonna do it without them has a has a, a political leader in this country or somewhere else you can you can imagine been able to do it kind of in the teeth of the press no i don't think so i can't think of an example of that. I mean, I, I don't think you can write a history of uh, modern Britain without a huge section on uh, its media. I think it is really powerful. You mentioned Europe, Andrew, and as you know, Tony Blair always said his mission was to end Britain's uh, unambiguous relationship with Europe. Um, but he never did it because of, largely because of the media. He, he wanted the sun on side. He was obsessed with the sun and keeping it on side, which he did, but only by holding back on uh, Europe. So it, it is very hard to go against the media. I mean, we've got, you mentioned the Uxbridge by-election. I think Sadiq Khan has been quite brave, actually, to be unqualified in his support for the ULITs, you know, the in effect fine for driving uh, uh, certain cars in places like Uxbridge, um, whereas Keir Starmer ran a mile. It is hard to take the media on. I've, I've got, I'm not interested in the royal family, but I've got an instinctive admiration for uh, Prince Harry or whatever he calls himself these days uh, for taking on the media. You have to be really brave to do it. If they go for you, they really do. It's going to be interesting to see what the newspapers do with Keir Starmer if it looks as if he's going to win. But I think some of them are getting ready to hammer him. And I think you'll find it very, very tough to take. Um, can you? Can anyone else think of where a prime minister has gone against media opinion resolutely irrespective of the onslaught? I, I can't. I can't think of an example. Liz Truss. Of, well, yeah, <laughs> what a success that was. Yeah, no, never, never stood for an election. No, it, it just seemed to me, and I was just, I and 
you know, iron rule nailed on. You cannot win an election unless you've got the bulk of the press uh, on your side. But I wanted to I wanted to raise the idea that, you know, Murdoch has just announced he's going to resign in November, although we'll see how much of a backseat driver he turns out to be. Paul Dacre won't be there forever. Is all this stuff wrapped around the idea that we've been through an era of hugely powerful and influential press barons and hugely powerful and influential editors? And that age seems to be going. The kind of loudmouth Kelvin McKenzie, Piers Morgan types are evaporating. You know, most people don't know who the editor of The Sun is anymore, whereas it used to be common knowledge. You know, Murdoch will vacate the stage and we know that his successor genuinely could not give a toss about newspapers. Mm. Does this power go back ultimately to those personalities? Uh, Yeah, I think... It does largely but not wholly. In other words, uh, at the moment, uh, the Telegraph is for sale. And it looks as if whoever gets it will not be a Murdoch, a, a, a solo individual, utterly dominant. Um, yeah, I suspect whoever it is who gets it, a conglomerate of various people, will make sure it's as right-wing as it's ever been. Um, and I think with Murdoch, there's a different question, whether the, the papers can survive without him, because you say it's he who loved newspapers. But I think their kind of potency won't necessarily fade if big individuals aren't owning them or editing them. Jeff, just to wrap this up, um, looking to the future, uh, sort of trust in newspapers is quite a double-edged concept. The survey I cited earlier found that only 5% of Generation Z trusted the papers, a tiny figure, but it didn't find out who they did trust, which just you know could equally yeah. be Russell Brand or some YouTuber. I mean, that's the, the, the idea that you have a generation coming up that trusts... Unverified. KSI, that's yeah. who they trust. Okay, <laughs> I, I thought that was the pressure on your tyres. I don't even know who that is. Um, the idea that, that they're trusting unverified sources. Yeah. Is well, quite I think that's a, that's a you know a bit of a better the devil you know situation. Maybe there's, there's people like Dacre and, Murd- and Murdoch and Mackenzie and people like that. We're now going to have personalities in the media who were completely unmoored from anything. Mm. At least those, they were sort of their tied to a publication which has some degree of value, something that's somewhere yeah. set in stone. And at least they were reporters of a sort. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And they, they had some, you know, whether it be self-policing or what, there was a there was a approach that they took which kind of had some method to it whatsoever. Now, when you look at it, so I found another bit of uh, a bit of info here from Reuters, which was basically saying that most people in kind of Gen Z now, actually, if you're looking at people who get their news from TikTok, they trust celebs and personalities and influencers more so than they would trust mainstream media publication when they're looking out for news. So that leads you to think that, yeah, your people like Russell Brand and people like Andrew Tate. But then there's also a concern maybe that there's even just less people who aren't so egregiously horrible people who are just shit and have no kind of training but say they know what's going on with news and younger people go oh but i like them i like mm. what they do i like what they're talking about and that's how it might shift so yeah i think it's, it's quite scary that we're going from one type of personality which at least was sort of bedded in something yeah. to another type of personality which is completely unmoored Get on TikTok, Jarv. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the future for you. I'm just like, I'm sort of terrified at the thought we're going to see a handshake picture of Keir Starmer with, I don't know, who's the latest PewDiePie? Or, you know, well, uh, Logan Paul or somebody awful yeah. like that. I mean, we don't want that. I mean, actually, if you did shake hands with KSI, that would be fine. KSI is pretty mild-mannered. We'll go, yeah. we'll go for him. Okay. Make a note on hand, KSI. Find out who <laughs> KSI is. It's fun. <laughs> Finally, pop music. Politicians always get it in the neck when they're asked to choose their favourite bands. Gordon Brown, as we mentioned, got endless stick for saying you like the Arctic Monkeys. That is what happens when you ask the intern for their suggestions. But last year, GB News asked Rishi Sunak about his favourite band, and he said the Beatles, which is fair enough, surely. Why do we expect politicians to have surprising or even good musical taste? Wouldn't it be better if they just said, I don't have time to listen to music, I'm running the bloody country? Miranda, mm. apart from the inevitable Alan Partridge <laughs> best of the Beatles gags that Sunak was subjected to, it's actually it's a good choice. In fact, in some respects, it's the only choice, isn't it? What's your favourite band? The best band of all time? Well, yes. I mean, it's very vanilla, isn't it? I mean, mm. you can't really you're not offending anybody if you say it's the Beatles. What I always think about Rishi Sunak is he just listens to whatever his daughters kind of tell him to. So if they're travelling somewhere in the car, you know, they'll they'll say, put this on and it'll be like Frozen or Taylor Swift or yeah. whatever. So he's just going to end up with kind of like mainstream 
young girl taste. Is to be he honest. basic? Is that what you're saying? He's pretty basic, <laughs> and that's fair enough. But I mean, you know, actually, I do object to the fact that politicians don't have very good taste. Because as far as I'm concerned, you know, being a cultural snob which I am, you need to have good taste of, as far as I'm concerned when it comes to music and you need to know about culture and you need to be involved in culture because it's important. Yeah, I mean, it's like what they used to call hinterland. Yeah, you I mean, you know, come on. What, yeah. <laughs> I was more annoyed when he said, oh yeah, I'm a total Swifty and I listen to Taylor Swift while I'm doing my exercise. No, e- either you don't and you're making it up or have a degree of It's his curiosity. kids, I'm telling you now, it's his kids, they programme his Peloton and that's what he listens to. What was worse, David Cameron saying he liked the Smiths and then Johnny Marr forbidding him to like the Smiths, saying, no, you don't like the Smiths? (laughs) Or was it Boris Johnson claiming to like the Clash? Oh, So I think that's really interesting because I think generally, if you go to public school, it's really, really hard to have a good music taste because essentially good music comes from a culture. And, you know, whatever that culture is, maybe you become very, you know, you really like grime, maybe you really like indie, but you've got to be part of that culture in order to understand it and be part of it. So Boris Johnson could have said The Clash, he could have said Genesis, he could have said anything, but he wasn't part of that culture because he essentially lived in a posh hotel. That's why public school boys and girls have really weird tastes because they're never part of the culture. I remember once doing an interview around kind of posh kids who went to Edinburgh University for the face and I asked them about music and they they literally said their favourite music was The Lion King. I mean, you know, they were 20. That's for little kids. Yeah, because they have no, they don't plug into culture because they're not out they don't go to gigs they only just hear it in passing i think this may have changed though because if you i think if you uh, look at today's uh, well-educated expensive educated kids and ask them what their favorite music is they'll probably say mumford and sons because they were at school with mumford and sons yes well exactly they they've say, got oh, great getting... departments certainly pop music departments yeah. well we're <laughs> getting all of our we are actually getting our musicians from these kind of privileged places now it's not like you know years ago when the happy mondays would just sort of stagger out of remand and form a band yeah well it, yeah very much so literally because they you know they have you know whatever their banker parents are saying oh well this is actually yeah. quite an interesting way to make a living why don't you go off and be a you know a theater star darling or here's a guitar for your fifth birthday that's why they've got the and also they've got the money to be able to do that you know they don't there's no enterprise allowance anymore (laughs) in order to be you know you can't become a band that easily because you just you just have to support yourself Jarv, should there be at least one follow-up question to politicians talking about their favorite bands and it should be all right name their favorite name their best album then I think the thing about that is you end up just getting into a sort of, I don't think you should be snobby about mm. n- having a forensic knowledge of music. For example, I, I really don't like, you know, I love I love The Cure as one of my favourite bands. But if you're actually like name the albums, name all the songs, I don't, I just don't know them. I just don't have that kind of link there. So yeah, that to me feels a little bit like almost, you know, when there'll be someone wearing a a Ramones t-shirt from H&M or something and then people go well but do you actually like and it's nearly always a young woman and it's an older guy going well name the Ramones yeah exactly so no I don't think so I think it's the question should just be but why Mm. why then because what's I understand what vibe do the Clash have that make them Boris Johnson's favourite band yeah where did you hear them like what did you do when you were hearing them I think I know what the vibe is that Boris Johnson likes about the Clash which is Joe Strummer, actually quite posh, public school. And also, it's like, let's smash everything up and, you know. It's, you know, it's quite I, jumpy up and down music, yeah, isn't it? he clearly doesn't understand the social agenda underneath what The Clash are about. And also, yeah, there's always that would, idea, isn't there, that people just don't listen to the lyrics. People don't listen to the lyrics <laughs> at all, no. I think Boris Johnson would have been on the wrong end of Sten Guns in Knightsbridge, definitely. <laughs> well, yes, it was, absolutely, I mean, definitely. Steve, we can see you cackling in the corner there. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, you see, it's almost a trick question. Because the interviewer knows, as you were saying, Andrew, that the truth is they most of them don't have any music. Some do, but most don't. And so they agonize about it. Like when they're asked on Desert Island Discs, they spend days choosing uh, because it becomes part of a projection of themselves. It's not truthful. You know, so Starmer, no doubt at the moment, you know, draped in his union jack flag and so on, would choose a kind of patriotic piece of music to convey what he's about. We know about Gordon Brown's preposterous Arctic monkeys at breakfast time um, because someone told him that would be a cool thing to say. And it it is ridiculous, but um, they all do it as a kind of an attempt to project themselves in a way that will be seen as electorally safe. 
at least, if not electorally attractive. So it's a sort of formula by, oh, yeah, we can't do that ban because they were done for drugs. We can't, you, you, you know, and on it goes. But there are very few. I'm just trying to think if I can remember hearing a real Beatles were done for drugs. The <laughs> <laughs> Beatles were drugs. <laughs> yeah, ex- yeah, actually, they're not safe, are they, on those grounds? But um, uh, I'm just trying to think of an authentic discussion with a political leader wanting to win an election and music. I can't think. Andy of- Burnham. Yeah, He's yeah. the only one. Yeah, yeah. He, he, Andy um, Burnham likes New Order. He kind of has to. Yeah, yeah, but he does genuinely. I mean, yeah. he DJs around Manchester. He does DJ around. <laughs> well, Keir Starmer, oh, yeah. interestingly, we, we do know what his favourite band is, and it's Orange Juice. Quite right. Which I think is brilliant yeah. because he is of yeah. that age. He's even kept the haircuts. He's even got an Edwin Collins haircut. I think Labour should fight the next election under the slogan, rip it up and start again. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> everybody would f- love that. Yeah. <laughs> I did a bit of nosing on some strange choices. I found John Major's Desert Island Discs. And as you'd expect, there's a lot of Gershwin and Elgar and all this kind of stuff. And one pop song, and it's it's The Happening by The Supremes, a fully Austin Powers 60s freak out thing. It's a great tune as well. And I just could not compute how that fits into John Major's world. I imagine him sort of dancing around the kitchen with Edwina Curry on the quiet, <laughs> listening to The Happening by The Supremes. Uh, yeah, it is a kind of big swell, isn't it, yeah. The Happening? So it's a bit like, you know, what music can do, which is make you think that you have this really important life. And of course, yeah. everybody's life is not that important. And music just gives you the yeah. the feel that you're in a film. It's that. It dramatises things. Does some it? of it come down to how you approach Desert Island Discs as well? Because I think some of the choices don't always reflect the fact that you are meant to be on a desert island with them forever. So Keir Starmer, for example, did pick Free Lions. Imagine that, oh playing over and over whilst you're I can't stuck even to on a desert island. We can't even there imagine because we no know. Way. We hear it all the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. So maybe John Major yeah. is sort of considering he needs interesting things to engage with yeah. to keep him sane on a desert island. I have been stuck on an island listening to Three Lines. The island is called the island of Great Britain. And, yeah, it was, <laughs> he would have been, Keir Starmer would have been told they love it in the Red Wall, the Three Lines, you know, England. Yeah. You know, and that's why he'll have chosen it. I mean, it, it, it's yeah. a political act when they start talking about their favourite music. It's not. A... And also, he wants to show that he does like football because he genuinely does. Yeah, he, yeah. Genuinely does he, like he, football, he yeah. really it, it would... genuinely does like football. He would have been better off choosing Ian Wright's Do the Right Thing, produced by Chris Lowe from the Pet Shop Boys, because he's an <laughs> Arsenal fan and it's an authentic record. I want to ask you, Miranda, though, about yeah. the great moments when Margaret Thatcher was asked what her favourite yes. record of all time was by Smash Hits magazine. By Tom Hibbert. By Tom Hibbert. What happened? Well, so uh, she was she was completely confused by this. So I think she didn't really know what she was who she was being interviewed by. And Tom Hibbert was a very, he was a kind of classic interviewer from Smash Hits. So he did the thing that I can never do, which he asked a question, then shut up. I can never do this. I just fill the awkward silences. But he asked the question of Margaret Thatcher and she was completely confused from, by it and then said, how much is that doggy in the window? Which is just <laughs> fantastic because, again, that's she was... I mean, obviously, there's a lot wrong with Margaret Thatcher, but there was an element of her that's completely genuine and not kind of PR'd because she, she had the confidence not to be PR'd. So she just gave her answer and that was her answer. Of course it is correct. And the wonderful thing was Tom Hurt then writes in smash hits for an audience of four 14-year-old girls, which <laughs> Margaret Thatcher's Bernard Ingham thought this was the right audience to reach out to. And Tom goes off and goes, very interesting choice from the Prime Minister there. Clearly, there's a strong belief in the market. How much is the doggy in the window? Will the market choose the price of the doggy? Also, but I, I remember thinking it was in a weird way, much as I loathed her, I couldn't bear her. But there was something strange and sweet and kind of pre-rock and roll about it, the kind of record that your nan would like because it was nice and, you know, like like Deck of Cards by, uh, you Yeah, know. it's definitely pre-rock and roll and it's definitely that idea that Thatcher kind of had, which I don't, I mean, obviously people can't do this now because they're not, it's a different era, but that slight feel of her connecting to the war somehow. I don't know why. I think it was her hair, the way that she presented herself. She just felt a little bit like she was connected to that generation, didn't she? But she also said she liked Telstar. Which is is insane, wild piece of music. (laughs) Anyway, to wrap this up, I'm going to do a quick fire round with some names of politicians. What music do they really like? Not what they say they'd like, what they really like. Grant Shapps. Okay, I've got a theory about Grant Shapps. So if you think about Grant Shapps, he's done lots and lots of different jobs, hasn't he? Plus he strides. He likes to stride along the catwalk. So you could say he's a bit like Taylor Swift. She does a bit of a stride and you can put her anywhere. You could say he's like Ed Sheeran. You can drop him into any kind of record. That's, That's who he is. I think Grant Shapps is the killer's. I think he just he plays Mr. Brightside first thing in the morning every day to get him into his multiple personalities. <laughs> Emily Thornberry. I've got one for Emily, 
go on, I think that she would be pre-cancellation Lizzo because she's just <laughs> like, I mean, unfortunately, Lizzo is being cancelled now, although I have to say, well, we could have a long conversation about well, this, yes. but we won't. But uh, that kind of oompa, nuts kind of let's have a yeah. party I think that Emily Thornberry is this person but constantly trying to keep it down I think yeah, she's a, I think she's a bit of a raver on the choir yeah. she's more of a rainer than, uh, than a, a kind of uh, controlled personality Miranda's running away with this one yeah. West Streeting Steve or Jarv what is what is West Streeting listening to I'm going to go Kraftwerk because he's just so okay. methodical I just think he was sort of listening to We Are The Robots and just getting stuff done <laughs> just thinking a really straight Possibly line about so. things like that but he's quite a London guy as well. I I think it's the streets because he just likes to think you listen to the streets. <laughs> to turn up your aerial, you know, it energizes him. I think that'll be his stuff. And finally, big challenge, Suella Braverman. What music does Suella Braverman listen to? I've got it. What right. Got? Okay. So she looks great, but don't turn the sound up. Thank you. Pussycat dolls. Pussycat. Oh God. <laughs> oh God. Well, the the pussycat dolls also convey the message of being pretty horrible. <laughs> So she would love them because they're also horrible, you know. I can I can imagine it. I I, I genuinely think Suella Brahman is the kind of person who just looks at music and goes, "Why? What's it for? Will this get me elected? What's the purpose of it?" Yeah, I can't see her enjoying any music whatsoever. I mean, the idea of her dancing is something I find like it would be more strange than when Theresa May did. It would be really disturbing. It'd be like yeah. watching Elaine dance on yeah. uh, Seinfeld. And <laughs> well, don't do it. Jerry calls it, she says she dances like a full body wretch. <laughs> <laughs> and on that killer playlist, we've come to the end of the podcast. Thank you for joining us, Miranda Sawyer. Back on Paper Cuts on Monday? Of course, yes. Okay, all right. And thanks to Steve Richards. What's on rock and roll politics next? Do we know or is it still up in the air? It will, it, it will be determined on the day like paper cuts. This is what we want. <laughs> Ripped from the headlines. And uh, see you tomorrow, Jacob, for more Grinding Out podcasts. See you tomorrow. Keep podding along. Keep on podding. <laughs> Listeners, thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. And also keep an eye on your bunker feed today, suddenly, because there might be something special there before uh, Monday morning. Remember, it's your contributions that keep the bunker bunkering. So please do think about supporting us on Patreon. A mere £3 a month gets you early ad-free episodes and it helps keep the lights on at Podmasters Towers. See the link in the show notes. All the best. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Panel is hosted by Andrew Harrison with guests Miranda Sawyer, Steve Richards and Jacob Jarvis. Socials by Jess Harpin, art by Jim Parrott and music by Kenny Dickinson. Produced by Alex Reese, edited by me, Robin Lee. Managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, group editor is Andy Harrison, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.